Well, it appears we are live and I can hear audio, so that's always nice, isn't it? And if we get the levels right, you'll be able to hear it properly as well. And if I can do that today, that's three in a row now where you've actually got audio. Anywho, it's just past 8.30 on Thursday night. Let us do the live stream thing. I don't know why the chat doesn't appear to be working, but anyway, we'll muddle on through and just see if the uh, if the chat thing comes good. I'm not sure why the chat's not working, but hey, you know, technology, you can always count on it to kind of let you down, can't you? And I could ask you to tell me in the chat if you can chat to me, but I can't see it on my end. I really don't know why. It's uh, bizarre. Anywho, I'm just getting a message now. That's professional, isn't it? You know? So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, apart from anything else, and I'd love to know what you think of this, basically, is um, this story that came through today about speed camera policy and also drink driving policy that they're going to change in New South Wales. And I really don't know why they're doing it this way. It seems to me a particularly, uh, it seems to me a particularly sort of churlish way of doing this stuff. Anyway, this was on news.com.au earlier today, and it says that speed camera warning signs are going to be scrapped and motorists caught driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol are going to face harsher penalties under a slew of proposed new laws for New South Wales. The government hopes changes will help crack down on speeding drivers, including by removing warning signs, often located 250 metres and then 50 metres ahead of mobile speed speed cameras which would warn motorists to slow down. The story goes on to say that these changes were spurred by the tragic deaths of four children at Oatlands earlier this year. I remember that one, it certainly was tragic. After an intoxicated driver mounted the footpath. Yeah, allegedly what happened there, and I didn't follow it up in court or any of that stuff, but allegedly what happened there was some dude lost the... uh, he basically lost control of his car. He was just drunk, lost control of his car, and these kids were in a fairly suburban back street, and they just, you know, were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and tragedy occurred. Three were from one family, I think, and one was a relative, and these kids were just, you know, walking down the walking down the street, they're minding their own business. It was a terrible thing. Now, this uh, this happened to Layla and Daniel Abdullah. They lost three children in the crash, and uh, one of the children's cousins was also killed, right? So, yeah, a terrible thing, certainly. One of life's great tragedies. I doubt the parents will ever recover, but, I mean, how would you, right? And New South Wales Transport Minister Andrew Constance said the changes are about shifting culture and behaviour. And here's the bit where I really don't agree with the minister, okay? He goes, we want to make a difference, and I get that. Like, yeah, okay, fantastic. You want to make a difference. Great. But then he says, we can't keep doing what we're doing year in and year out, knowing the impact it had on families, loved ones, children and our community. And I agree that preventable road death needs to be attacked in a meaningful way. It really does. Okay, preventable road death is something that we can work on and it needs to be solved. Now, I just don't see how the speed camera uh, policy changes play into this at all, how would that have changed that particular tragedy earlier this year? I'm not seeing it, okay? How would, for example, how would 
changing the harsher penalties for drug offences and drink driving offences change the policy. Like, I'm not seeing it. I, I'm really not. Like, if a person today, given the culture we've got around drink driving today, which is in 99.9 something percent of the community, it is absolutely unacceptable to drive a car if you are over the limit, right? So how is just doing the hair and makeup going to fix it? What you've got to do is you've got to have a law that basically says if you are drunk behind the wheel of a car, like legally drunk over the limit, and you kill someone, then you go inside for some sort of vehicular death-related, vehicular homicide-related penalty. And it can be manslaughter or whatever, because obviously you didn't intend to do it. But if you're that negligent that you get behind the wheel of a car over the limit and you're finding some rat run through the back of some suburb where you think you won't get RBT'd, then how is some bigger fine or changing the hair and makeup on speed camera operations actually going to deal with this problem? Um, Now, Bridget Sucker, and I apologise if I've mispronounced that, she is uh, a parent of an 11-year-old daughter named Veronique who died in the crash. She told NCA Newswire, we're extremely overwhelmed with the change in the law. It's taken nine months to get this legislation into place. That's never happened as fast before. And I think that in itself speaks as to uh, how much the impact this tragedy has had on people's lives all over Australia. Ms. Sucker, who uh, was present at the announcement of the proposed new rules alongside Mr. and Mrs. Abdullah, lost, who lost their children uh, aged 8, 12 and 13. The change is going to be rolled out over a 12-month period, they say, and speaking to the media on Thursday, Mr. Constance said tougher penalties would also be thrown at those caught drink and drunk uh, and drug driving from next year as well. This kind of thing is just not going to work. And I fail to see how the minister can stand there with a straight face and do that, right? Because let's look at the facts. There's like around the country, 1,100 people a year die on the roads. And that is a lot of people. But at the same time, we drive 210 billion kilometres in Australia, which is like 30 return trips to Pluto or something. And some level of death is going to occur, right? What we need to do is we need to stamp out the uh, preventable stuff and we need to get the big stick out, the proper big stick for somebody who is drug affected or drunk and they kill someone. They need to go inside. And if you want a deterrent, that's it, right? And I don't see any of that stuff. What's headlining this story is changes to speed camera policy, which would have made absolutely no difference to road safety in the case of the tragic deaths of these children. And the only thing that can make a difference to this kind of irresponsible behaviour is a large fleet of high-profile highway patrol cars visible everywhere and which could be anywhere at any time and if you see that all the time on the road what are you going to do when you think it might be a nice idea to do 120 down a public street in the back in the, in the back of some suburb or to have too much to drink and go i'll oh, bugger it i'll drive home anyway if you see that that high profile policing and you see a lot of police cars out there potentially to ensnare you if you do one of those two things then that's going to solve the problem. And I'd suggest changing the sign policy for speed cameras. That's just hair and makeup. And the only thing that that will affect is revenue. And while we're talking about road death, okay, 
look at it this way. Three times as many people die of suicide. Okay, and I know suicide's a touchy subject with a lot of people. And if it confronts you in Australia, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And that's what they're there to do, to talk to you about that confrontation. So I just mentioned this for perspective on the magnitude of the problem. It's three times bigger, suicide. Okay, and it gets hardly any of a run because you can't find people for having depressed thoughts. You know what I mean? You just can't do that. And I don't know why they don't put more high-profile resources towards something that kills more of us. And often young people as well, just like uh, road death, frankly. And if you want perspective a little bit more on this, let's just look at air pollution. Because air pollution in our cities kills about two and a half times the number of people who are killed by car crashes, okay? And cars are a large polluter, mainly mainly really old trucks which migrate to the cities in Australia perversely, like in North America, old trucks migrate to South America where they can pollute like crazy, okay? And in Western Europe, right, the uh, trucks when they age, they migrate to Eastern Europe and countries of that nature often ending in Stan, you know? And In Australia, we don't have a land bridge to somewhere that's socioeconomically worse off than us. So the older trucks tend to migrate to the cities to move shipping containers from ports to logistics distribution facilities. And many of those trucks have absolutely no pollution controls. And in terms of their ability to deal death, it's really atrocious. And nothing is ever done in a regulatory sense about that. And I'm just wondering why these ministers seize every opportunity to stand up in front of any journalist who will listen, any set of TV cameras, whatever, and then make like they're making some radical change that makes a real difference when, in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, I'm actually having a little bit of trouble with the chat here, but I'm relying on a good mate of mine who is um, quite resourceful from uh, bestfamilycars.com.au. Scott Murray, his name is. And he's going to SMS me some of the best chats from you so that we don't actually have this fall over on us. And I really cannot figure out why the chats, why the chat is not coming up for me, okay? I don't get that. I, if there's some, you know, miracle that I'm not seeing here, then hopefully it'll just resolve itself. But I'm looking at the options to do with the with the live chat, and I'm, baby, I'm just not seeing it. So there's that. Anyway, Kim Bland says, I want to buy a Porsche 986 Boxster S or a Honda S2000. What can you advise? I'd suggest, well... The 986 is likely to be a little bit more fun and it's likely to be more of a status symbol and all of those things. And in the handling and performance domain, it's going to be just fine, right? Because, hey, that's what they do. But when it comes to keeping this thing on the road, finding parts and someone who knows how to work on them and it not absolutely busting the budget, then I would say the S2000 every time. And S2000 is kind of fun. I particularly like the engineering in the powertrain where you can be in VTEC mode if you shift up at 9,000 RPM, which is the red line, and it'll drop you back to 6,000 in the next gear, which is where VTEC kicks off, okay? So if you remember to change back at 6,000 and change up at 9,000, you can operate an S2000 in VTEC mode with the big overlap, in other words, 
all the time, right? And it's just outrageous fun to drive like that. And then, you know, when you're in traffic and just commuting from A to B, you can change wherever you want at lesser revs and just have a sort of mild engine that behaves nice and tractably. So that's really nice. The cabin is quite tight in an S2000. It feels a little bit like this. And also there's a sort of flip down cover if memory serves, uh, across the audio system. And if you unflip it, it folds down towards the centre console tunnel thing, transmission tunnel. And that's right where you want to brace with your knee in a hard right-hand corner. And that gets as uncomfortable as all get out over time. So in the domain of criticisms, it's not really that harsh, is it? And I believe the reliability, like typical Honda from the 90s, right? The reliability of S2000 is just fine. So there's that. I, it depends what the budget is, what your capacity for status is, and also, you know, do you want reliability or not? And if you want the reliability, go the Honda. Pretty simple. Now, uh, James Simpson says, I would like your opinion on the new Toyota BMW Supra. Well, I've not driven it, but hey, it's going to be awesome. And it makes sense for more manufacturers to collaborate because the design of cars like this, which let's face it, don't sell in huge numbers, is hugely expensive. It make it would make sense for BMW and Mercedes-Benz or someone to get together on engine design and just share the design of engines because, you know, engine design is expensive and you want an M3 to go just like a C63S, right? So you, they could get together and, you know, share parts under the table as it were and those vehicles would excuse me, they'd go just fine and they would also uh, be somewhat cheaper, you know, or more profitable slash more profitable. But you just have to, you know, you'd have to get brands like that to cooperate with each other and they're kind of arch enemies, aren't they? So, look, I think the, the because it's a BMW-Toyota collaboration, you're not going to have a great deal of reliability issues with that car either. And, you know, I'd, I'd be a fan of driving either one and you could own it as a long-term proposition. It'll be just fine. Um, James, uh, now Kim Gray says, what do you think about airbag suspension on coil springs? This is, you got to kill something every day just to maintain um, operational proficiency. And, you know, right on the cusp of summer, it's bug city around here at the moment. You can't walk outside without the big podge right? Waving it in front of you to take down the spiders hanging in wait. It's awesome. You're taking the dog out right at the 11th hour of the evening, you know, and it's just spider o'clock in the backyard and they're all flesh eaters. <laughs> Straight up. Okay, so let us get into some of these questions and thank you very much, Scott, for sending these through because, mate, I'm still not seeing any trap, any chat. That does kind of suck and if I press refresh on this page, I'm wondering if it's just going to terminate the stream, you know, like some terrible kidney stone. So I won't do that. Coil suspension, okay, airbag suspension on coil springs, airbag suspension on any springs, okay, they're typified in utes, aren't they? You know, you, you load your ute up, you put your acoustically transparent aluminium shitter on the back, also called a caravan, and it's got like 300 kilos on the tow ball, cantilevered right out the back going down like this. And then you put all your shit in the back of the ute and your two very fat selves get in the front and the suspension virtually collapses to the bump stops. And you think to yourself, I'll fit some airbags. 
So you fit the airbags inside the coils and you pump them up and that's, you get the ride level back up and you think, this is nothing, except frankly, it's not nothing. It's something. You've just restored the ride height, okay? What's likely to happen in these heavily loaded conditions is, of course, you go over the wrong sort of bump at the wrong sort of speed and you get the wrong sort of reaction out of your caravan and you bend the friggin' chassis of the vehicle. And this is very common on things like desert crossings these days because everyone thinks they can tow everything they own in the biggest acoustically transparent chitois they can find and they put all this crap in the back. Their vehicle's overloaded. They cure it with airbags and it bends the chassis. And a lot of numpties then go on to basically conclude that the chassis is bent because of the airbags. And that's like blaming the wrong culprit, okay? The chassis gets bent because of overloading. And the untrained punter thinks, and it's often sold to him in this context as well, as a cure for these heavily loaded situations. Whereas in reality, if you're going to do something demanding, like terrain demanding with your vehicle, don't carry anything like its maximum payload because maximum payload, maximum towing capacity, you know, all of this stuff, maximum off-road ruggedness or maximum rugged on-road driving, big divots and stuff like that, you are going to overload the chassis and it will bend and that's going to cost you thousands and blaming the, uh, blaming the airbags is just absolutely ridiculous, okay? So, look, airbags have their place, I suppose, because if you're going to go to the landscape supply joint and load your vehicle up to the absolute max and drive it a short distance with a bunch of sand or a bunch of gravel or some bags of concrete in the back or all of that stuff, okay, fine on a smooth road between the landscape supply joint and your joint, and you're going to drive nice and conservatively, then, hey, airbags have got their place for that kind of thing. But it's not a cure for operating your vehicle in the collaboration of all the worst-case scenarios together. It's that, that, that really is a great way to break something, you know, and it's just hugely expensive, okay? Um, now, Uthred. Uthred says, what are your thoughts on the new brz i don't know too much about the new brz how new is it exactly i'd have to do actual research on that which i might do right now new brz maybe i missed that one oh yeah 2022 subaru brz officially unveiled australian launch confirmed more power uh, against power boost and more tech but no turbo so it looks like the hair and makeup, you know, I'm, I'm just speculating about this. Uh, a car advice here, who's the reporter on this one? Alex Unpronounceable says, uh, the 2022 Subaru BRZ has been unofficially, un unofficially, officially unveiled after months of rumours and teasers. Uh, now he's starting with the information every car enthusiast has been waiting for. Powertrain for the new BRZ and likely next generation Toyota 86 is a 2.4 litre naturally aspirated four-cylinder boxer engine. No turbocharger to be found there. Subaru's estimated outputs, uh, final figures yet to be locked in. 170 kilowatts of power and 249 newton metres of torque. 
up 18 kilowatts and 37 newton meters. So it's a token upgrade, isn't it? Like you'll feel it, but it's not Jesus. That's awesome, you know. Um, uh, 23 kilowatts up and 44 newton meters up compared with the outgoing automatic variants. So some variation there depending on the powertrain. Drives still fed to the rear wheels through the same choice of six-speed manual, a six-speed torque converter automatic, though the self-shifter gains a refined sport mode that holds higher gears and uh, delivers snappier shifts. So stuff like that. It sounds, <coughs> excuse me, it sounds to me like they're really just sexing up the old girl, basically. It, it, it's not going to, it's an evolution at best, certainly not revolutionary. If you like the old one, if it's time to upgrade, then hey, you'll probably like the new version, but it's really not going to be that big a deal. It's, uh, and uh, the dimensions have changed as well. It's only, it's 25 millimeters longer, 13 millimeters lower, and six millimeters longer in the wheelbase than the current model, but identical in width. So yeah. They've just changed the hair and makeup on the old girl, I think. It's a fun car to drive, but the criticism has always been it needs more power. And I guess, you know, maybe it does need more power, but you tend to think that about cars that really handle superbly, you know. And if nothing else, because I, when I tested it, I did the road test on a really rainy day on, uh, on some really windy roads. And in a car like that, you've got to be so careful to be unwinding the steering and really gentle on the power, you know, because it's that kind of thing, you know, and a lot of cars are extremely forgiving. A lot of Subarus are forgiving in those circumstances. Like a WRX STI feels like it's on rails, almost irrespective of the conditions over which you're driving, right? But a Subaru BRZ is exactly the opposite. You have to be on it and you need a lot of finesse to get the best out of it. Uh, in the rain and let's not forget in the rain it's it's easy not to uh, comply with the fundamental prerequisite of having a good time which is to go really really fast and not crash the not crash part can be quite difficult in the rain with uh, that sort of really easy direction changing ability and rear wheel drive so there's that but basically that's what i think about that car i, I just don't think it's going to set the world on fire it's just more of the same and it looks a little bit different you know it's it's sleeker and more curvy but it's really not a revolution so um aussie e piper now says please explain benefits and drawbacks for front wheel drive rear wheel drive and all wheel drive okay for most people, it doesn't make any difference, okay? All-wheel drive can be a huge advantage, though, in the wet and on an unsealed road. But you've got to appreciate that this sort of ballpark statement about huge advantage really just talks about low-speed uh, spinning of the wheels. And it, let's not forget, if you're doing a low-speed going around a corner, too much welly in a rear-wheel drive car, you're likely to just light it up and induce an oversteer slide which could have catastrophic consequences if you end up going into the oncoming traffic or hitting a pole or a tree right so in that sense all-wheel drive keeps things more constrained because instead of having a hundred percent of the drive going to two wheels you've got uh, 50% of the drive going to those two wheels and 50% of the drive going to these two wheels at the other end and therefore the tractive effort can double in situations 
where traction is limited. So if you can light the wheels up easily, then if you were to switch like that to all-wheel drive mode, you'd have twice as much tractive effort or half the possibility of spinning the car off the road. Rear-wheel drive does tend to be a lot of fun, you know, if you want to hang the tail out, if that's your thing, a bit of drifting. And front-wheel drive tends to work really well in hot hatches, particularly ones with uh, limited slip diffs at the front. They allow you to get onto the gas so early around the apex of the bend if you're in a track-driving situation. But essentially, rear-wheel drive's not that common. All-wheel drive is expensive because you need to have the components that pump the drive to each end of the car, which does add substantially to the price. It's one of the reasons, for example, why uh, the all-wheel drive diesel variants of vehicles like uh, Santa Fe's and Sorrento's and things of that nature, you know, SUVs, it's one of the reasons why they're a little bit more expensive. It's because you need another differential at the back and you need a transfer case in the middle and you need a prop shaft going to the back and those things have to have precise engineering built into them and it's all very complex. But for most of these vehicles, they become they default to front drive when you're doing normal speeds, normal driving speeds, like above 60 or 70 kilometres an hour, because at those speeds, you don't have the torque at the driving wheels to brake traction. So why not disengage the all-wheel drive system and just take it a little bit easier on the components? That's, that's basically how it is. There are more front-wheel drive cars than anything else because they're simpler to build, because you can basically just take a whole engine and powertrain, gearbox, axles, drive shafts, all of that stuff, you know, you can take that whole assembly and just jam it in the car in one operation. Can, the whole powertrain can be pre-packaged and pre-built and you just bring it along the line like this and then you drop the body of the car onto it, do up a few bolts and Bob's your uncle. It's much more complex and expensive to manufacture rear-wheel drive and also more expensive from a component point of view to do all-wheel drive. But I guess the other thing I'd say here is the distinction between all of these different drives is much less now because, frankly, the, uh, the systems that control the worst behaviours of cars, like losing control around a bend and spinning the wheels, they're all taken care of much more effectively now with traction control and stability control systems and things of that nature. So whereas in the 90s it made a huge difference whether a car was rear-wheel drive or all-wheel drive or front-wheel drive, today not so much for the vast majority of drivers. But if you want to have fun in your car and you're a total driving enthusiast, there's a reason why an MX-5 or an 86, for example, is a rear-wheel drive car. There's a reason why a Golf GTI and a Hyundai i30N are front-wheel drive hot hatches. And there's a reason why WRXs and cars of that nature are all-wheel drive because it fundamentally alters their character and it's a case of horses for course is in the enthusiast domain with those so let us have another look now and still getting no chat thanks very much um thanks very much technology on that because anyway but anyway scott's doing a great job there and if you want to visit his website you could show him some love at bestfamilycars.com.au now 
Adrian Romana says, Hi, John, Toyota 86 and Subaru BRZ, which is better as a better choice for long-term ownership, brackets 10 years. Toyota seems to provide better periods of parts supply and support than other brands. I'd say six or one and a half a dozen of the other, mate, because both Toyota and Subaru are good at customer support. I'd rank Subaru above Toyota for customer support, uh, but the supply of parts is going to be, there's going to be a lot of crossover parts apart from anything else. So I don't think it matters, you know. I think, uh, how does it work? One of the vehicles, I think it's the BRZ comes in one spec, which is a sort of mid to high spec, whereas the Toyota comes in two specs. You get a sort of a low spec and a really high spec. So maybe that makes a difference in terms of long-term ownership. You might get more kit in the really upmarket Toyota. But don't quote me on that. It's been a hell of a long time since I looked at the at the specs for BRZ and 86 and hey it's just because not too many people buy them they're a totally niche car and I don't get asked many questions about them a George BX now he says hi John my wife wants to buy a Range Rover Velar <laughs> however after watching your videos I've squashed that idea well done, George. You've saved yourself a great deal of pain there. It's probably going to be a bit frosty on the marital front for some time, but hey, what's new? Can you recommend a medium SUV four-wheel drive? We enjoy driving on the beach and mild off-roading. This is really, depends what you mean by mild and how much do you want to spend, right? Because if you want a premium sort of SUV, I wouldn't be taking any premium car onto the beach. I just, I just wouldn't do that. I would buy something that was designed for that kind of work that was rugged and capable and you didn't really mind too much if it got, you know, salt water impregnated at 100 kilometres an hour into every orifice from time to time, right? And that would not be anything from Land Rover, frankly. I wouldn't buy a Land Rover because the reliability is crap and the support is worse, you know, so there's that. I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't buy an Audi or a Mercedes-Benz because they're both terrible at customer support, even though the products themselves, particularly Mercedes-Benz product, absolutely gorgeous, right? The SUVs, gee, they're doing a good job with them at the moment, really strong, I think, but the risk of getting poor support or of them just hanging you out to dry because they've decided to discontinue some feature and then they'll justify that to you in, I don't know, some way, forget it. Like, you've got to be kidding. So that leaves BMW. You could buy something like an X5, but I wouldn't be chugging an X5 down any sort of even half gnarly track. You know, I wouldn't be slogging it through soft sand because if you break something, like if you overdo it on the all-wheel drive system, it's going to be so expensive. So if you want to drive on the beach, etc., get yourself a vehicle like a Pajero Sport. And, and I know there's a big gap in between Range Rover Velar and Pajero Sport. But hey, horses for courses, a Pajero Sport will eat that stuff. It'll do it really easy. And with the money you save, you could buy a, a nice little car for, you know, driving around anyway in, when you're not in the beach. You could buy a really nice Mazda 3, for example, like a, a G25 which would come with all the bells and whistles and just be a very civilized nice package to drive so that's the kind of thing i would think about if i was you know prompted to buy some you know range rover velar you gotta be kidding uh, if you're going to do anything that involves really harsh sort of hard, all-terrain work you need something like a pajero sport and the unique selling propositions there are 
you can operate a Pajero Sport in all-wheel drive mode on high traction surfaces, which you cannot do which with the vast majority of hardcore four-wheel drives because their sort of 4H mode is the prop shafts synchronously locked front and rear and therefore only available to you when you're in soft conditions. So if you're in a Pajero Sport, for example, and it rains or you've got to drive down a slippery gravel road, you just get the centre dial and t- turn it one click to the right and you're in four-wheel drive mode with the centre diff unlocked and you've got a lot more control of that vehicle from the get-go. And then if conditions devolve even more and it gets properly slippery, like the road turns to the beach and the sand is slippery, then you can just flick to 4H on the fly, right? So that's really good for that kind of versatility. It is a bit visually confronting from the back, the Pajero Sport, but hey, when you look at the price compared with, say, a Fortuna or a vehicle of that nature cast from the same cloth, they're both wagon derivatives of their representative utes, right? So when you look at that Pajero Sport every time, if you want to do any kind of off-roading, but the premium vehicles just don't bother going off in any of them It's just going to cost you money, and they're not designed to be particularly good at it. So there's that. Now, um, old mate GHS 77. Yes. Now, he's given me five bucks for this in the chat, which I can't friggin' see. Thanks a lot. Anyway, GHS 77, I did make a promise last week. I said I would wear this shirt, right? And in part, I'm doing it because I'm such a fan of equality. You know, I want all the women out there to be going, Jesus check out the melons on that yes right anyway ghs 77 says nice super cool gay shirt john two exclamation marks i don't see how a shirt can be gay but i've got a story for you about that anyway thank you for wearing the shirt you promised three was it three weeks ago i think you you know gilding the lily a bit there ghs and uh, you need you just need a tropical drink in your hand You'll have to imagine the bamboo umbrella, and I'll have to imagine the the gin and tonic. So there's that. And incidentally, on the issue of gay shirts, right, allegedly gay shirts, not that there's anything wrong with that. I mentioned earlier today to some of you that uh, Clive Robertson, broadcasting legend, was sort of my mentor. He grew into my de facto mentor at Radio 2UE. And the reason the gay shirt comment pertains to that is... You know, when Clive took over the program that I was the motoring guest on, I'd come in and my job would be to talk cars. And Clive is a bit of a car nut, right? So we'd take calls, I'd talk cars, that'd be the job. Anyway, Clive is not a regulation human being, okay? Because his thing is entertainment above all else. And he doesn't think like a normal person. He he, he doesn't behave like a normal person. He's quite unpredictable and he, he puts you off so badly. So he would just... Here's an example, right? You come out of the news, the news happens on the hour and then it goes for about four and a half minutes and then they do you know, news, sport, weather, then they cross to traffic, Clive plays his intro and says a few words, goes into delay, turns on microphone two, which is my microphone, and looks across at you and you expect him to say, our motoring expert John Cadogan joins us now to take your calls about motoring. So if you've got any questions, give us a call now on 13 13 32, sort of thing, right? And... (laughs) 
he turns on microphone too and looks at you and goes, that's the gayest shirt I think you've ever worn, <laughs> right? And if you're not prepared for that, that's like, and if you're a newbie at this sort of thing and, you know, I'd done it for a while, but I was certainly a newbie compared to Clive and here's Dr. Evil in the studio, right? So that would be so disorienting. And all of a sudden you'd go from getting ready to talk in front of however many people, 20,000 or something are listening. Uh, you'd be, you'd be doing, going from that and you'd be completely disoriented like in jujitsu when you're just on the mat and some dude is choking you out, right? Just like that. So Anyway, I I spent three months leaving the leaving the studio after an hour of allegedly talking cars to the punters, and I was just gutted, like absolutely gutted. Like if I'd be if somebody had accosted me and with a knife and said, "Give me your wallet or I'll stab you," like this, I would have said, "Mate, just stab me and then take the bloody thing." Right? So. <laughs> After about three months, I thought to myself, I've got to decompile this because I've got to lift my game and I've got to take him on, right? So I got to, I got to figure out Clive's wacky mentality. And it's, it's like Luke trying to figure out Yoda, you know? It's almost impossible to do, but you can start playing Clive's game back to him, right? So when he goes microphone two on, that's the gayest shirt I think you've ever worn. What you say is, instead of deer in the headlight or no, it's not, or being defensive, what do you mean sort of thing, you say, no, I thought two weeks ago, I thought that shirt was gayer. What do you think? Like this, back in his court, right? And the first time I did that to him, he looked at me like this. He looked at me like, you're playing my game back at me. Let's see where this goes. So we did that for, I don't know, we did that for a couple of years and it was just hugely uplifting for a while and ultimately it turned into a show that wasn't really about cars at all. It was just like doing judo on the mat, right? Who's going to be, who's going to be on top, you know, kind of thing. And it was, it was really humbling to work with Clive and I'm extremely grateful that I got to spend all that time with him, even though it's so gutted me and it continued to gut me for some time after that. But you know, we became reasonably, uh, reasonably friendly. Although I'm not, I'm not sure that Clive's the sort of person you have a best buddy relationship with. But you can relate to him in some ways about the job, and he's quite an entertaining chap. And you know, he um, a show started right, and you might get dinner or something because he went on to do nights, and I joined him there. And you know, uh, night newsreader on Channel Seven here in Shitsville, and he would just do judo on everyone he confronted everyone who confronted him and he just about the different it wasn't like sitting down for a lesson you just had to live with it you know you had to cope with that that stuff as well so anyway ghs 77 never let it be said that i didn't come good with live stream this evening isn't it because i'm just getting an error message now that says we're not youtube's not receiving enough video to maintain smooth streaming as such viewers will expose um it seems to be working all right now. We'll just see what happens. Now, um, Brandon Staples. Oh, no, we'll go. Is it purely cost-cutting? Those rear drum brakes are cheaper, and frankly, for most applications for dual-cab utes, they work just fine. So that's why they still got them. And it's got a coil spring underneath it there. Then that that piece of chassis equal to the total load being applied above it, right? And if you've got a leaf spring... It joins the chassis like that. So the load is 
distributed across Tuping is that you've got these uh, you, you've got these other leaves down the bottom which are not together and then you've got these shorter leaves down the bottom that are not as long and they just I'm getting a little bit more of a message here about you know YouTube's not receiving enough data and I really do hate that I'm getting the pausing signal again is thing work just fine so I wonder if it's the NBN not being able to cope I do hate the down however he says hi John do you like the news but you have to acknowledge that it's a different animal than the three point because the two liter twin turbo ranger performs better than therefore if you don't need that additional performance you might find that the two liter is just kind of in turbo which would be that the 10 speed auto hunts around like crazy if you attempt heavy towing with that vehicle so anyway there's there's that kind of thing to consider. I haven't heard anything about the Proceed, and there's no prick teasing yet about the Sportage. I think the new Tucson is going to be towards the middle of next year, 2021, right? So they've got supply problems, basically, and I wouldn't be expecting a new Sportage any time. I have a friend downsizing from a Ranger to the LDV T60. I recommended Triton, but he's looking at cost. What do you think? Well, in many ways, I think it's going to be better because there's less risk the basically that's what it comes down to you're going to pay more for a triton even though triton is you know quite a good value proposition when you compare it with a similar spec ranger or stored sharp side up think safety on the dual wall i can't tell you won't i andy fpv says a subaru needs to wake up and get rid of that hideous cvt gearbox ball number of bolt-on customers they're just bolted on they buy wrx after i get it in vehicles like impreza impreza is like a, a a conflagration of two when you drive a wrx you've got an inspiring engine and a really nicely tuned been driving things like impreza then you know the cvt and impreza wouldn't do it for me either nor would the engine only exciting version at least you know you haven't got to have the whole range like that because hey boring people with an inspiring powertrain at the top of the range anyway subaru is going to be ha uh, unhappy to hear that they've lost you andy but there you go this engineering and it worries me no i don't see how it would all it done lubricated there's absolutely no downside to cylinder deactivation it only occurs at low loads vibration is therefore constrained tube stream isn't coping i do hate that this is the second Thursday in a row where the YouTube stream has not ascent large seven-seater since Hyundai is bringing the Palisade. Got no idea. Look, I'm terribly sorry. The stream is dropping out. What I'm going to do because this cannot be. And I wish the technology had gone a little bit better because what an epic friggin' fail on the streaming technology and no access BN with a lot of other demand on the system. If so, we might have to think about moving the stream to another time when there's less demand on the system. I'll do a bit of investigation.